Don't touch me, I'm showering. Oh, oh, don't touch me, cause I'm in the shower. Hello, and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare, and each episode I'll be gently chucking you on the chin with the patronising fist of creative writing pedagogy. Pedagogy. Pedagogy? Yeah, also I'll be humanising myself by revealing words that I don't know how to pronounce in real life. For shame. Once you know the rules, you can break them said the stupid person. I hear a lot of smack talk about writing rules, that they don't exist, that they're a sign of infantilism. But then, on the other hand, if you go into a writing workshop and the tutor sweeps her arm across the room and says, there are no rules, and then kicks back and smokes a big doobie, you're unlikely to think, oh, what a nuanced and mature artistic paradigm. So I want to make a distinction between two things which both get called rules. Fiction norms and fiction principles. Fiction norms are often culturally and historically bound. They have to do with reader expectation. Some are localised to particular genres. They form part of an ongoing meta-narrative which your work will play into. Fiction principles are about making your writing intelligible, engaging and not shit. Well, I'm not going to argue that they're immutable and eternal. By human standards, they're pretty steady. They're the foundation on which your story rests, hence... Principles. Norms are there to be challenged, inverted, and sometimes, I hope, honoured. The hero's journey is really cool, right? No shame in that. Principles are there to be used. Norms are the clay, and principles are the tools we work it with. So, what say you we put some of that abstract bullshit into action? I'm asking listeners to send in the first 250 words of their novel for us to critique. If you fancy getting your work looked at, stick around to the end, and I'll tell you how. Today's piece is called Sniper. And it's by someone called Sam. Sniper. Time slowed to a crawl. Will, following some primal instinct that had saved his ass five, six, now seven times, moved to the left. The bullet cut a path through the space where his head had been and struck the skeleton of a bus some twenty yards back. A deafening clang came to his ears, but no gunshot. Was the gun silenced or was it just the wind? He couldn't tell and shortly after the first shot, his guardian angel's sixth sense pretty much left him for dead, because the second one entered through his right breast, shattered his rib, and dug a path through flesh and lung before exiting out the back, white hot, and throwing him to the ground with the force of a sledgehammer. He hit the asphalt, and everything sped back up. While he reeled, Sarah grabbed his collar and began to pull. She had her rifle in one hand and was dragging Will toward the bus with the other, yelling, where did it come from, Will? What direction? As a third shot hit the pavement at Will's feet. He coughed and tasted blood, acrid and metallic. Looking down at his shirt, he saw a growing blot of crimson and thought, how exactly did I go so long without being shot? While Sarah frantically dragged and said, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. He hoped they had taught her how to treat sucking chest wounds in medical school. Hello, Sam. Thanks for your submission. First line. Time slowed to a crawl. Authors have fucked up show-don't-tell for years, and they will continue to do so until the heat-death of the universe, narrating the entropic collapse and the demise of time itself with expository lumps of such joyless familiarity that the end of all things will seem as a soothing lullaby compared to their tin-eared caterwauling. Doesn't mean authors who get it wrong are bad people. It's not a slight on you, Sam. It's just a thing. 
that happens and it must be eradicated. And one of the reasons it's so hard to stop, one of the reasons it clings on like a horrible bacterial culture in the unwashed scrotal folds of our prose, is that most writers don't really know what show don't tell means. Well, they sort of do. You do, right? If I asked you now, you could kind of brute force out an approximate definition. You might come to it via a couple of tentative analogies, but eventually you'd alight on a meaning. And I'm guessing... Uh, I reckon you'd say that it's when you try to give the reader information about a character by showing them in action and allowing us to deduce that information rather than just telling us what they're like. So instead of saying, Manfred was a music lover with superhuman but niche powers, you'd say... Manfred inserted the mouthpiece of a soprano trombone into his anus and farted a cloud of bats towards the Duke's villa. Good writing is all about flavour. So, how does this relate to your first line? Time slowed to a crawl. Is that showing? Or telling? Noble friends, may I introduce the twin trickster gods. Simile and metaphor. Because a simile isn't what a thing or person actually is, it feels like you're showing. Example, Annabella was built like a tank. Of course, we know Annabella wasn't literally constructed in a secure factory by corrupt military contractors profiting from global conflict. Although, if that was a book, I'd read the shit out of it. So it's not telling, right? Thing is... It's not really showing either, it's just a bleak, refracted exposition. We don't get to see Annabella doing anything and make judgments about her physique. We're just spoon-fed a position. So your first sentence is, time slowed to a crawl. Which is a cliche, but let's not cause a criticism bottleneck here. One hideous crime against prose at a time, please. Time didn't literally slow to a crawl, so it's a metaphor. You're signalling that you want us to consider the sentences that follow as if we're watching them in slow motion. It's a stage direction. You're going, you know that cool bit in an action movie? Do that in your head. Sam, 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 my dear friend, no. Do not do this. As a writer, you already have control over time. You choose what information comes out when and how quickly. By increasing the detail level, you can slow your world from a blur of action into this glassy, frozen tableau. You can pick out the sweat bead running from your antagonist's temple, how it paints a clean line through the pale brick dust coating her neck. Don't tell us time slowed down. Slow time down and let us experience it directly. Next line. Will, following some primal instinct that had saved his ass five, six, now seven times, moved to the left. The bullet cut a path through the space where his head had been and struck the skeleton of a bus some 20 yards back. Who perceives the bullet cutting a path through the space where his head had been? we supposed to be experiencing the story from Will's perspective because unless Will literally has superpowers, unless he is literally slowing time down, there is no way he could track the path of a bullet while dodging. Maybe, just maybe he could feel the bullet whip past or hear it, you'd have to research that and check, but you use explicitly visual terminology. The bullet cut a path through the space where his head had been. Because really what you're doing is taking a cinematic cliche, bullet time, and transplanting it into a medium where it makes less sense. The camera is almost always third person, whereas in literature, the viewpoint is more porous. For what it's worth, I like the skeleton of a bus. That's nice and visual and crunchy. It tells us a lot about the scene. Most readers will fill in a wrecked urban landscape, perhaps post-apocalyptic. 
Next line. A deafening clang came to his ears, but no gunshot. Was the gun silenced or was it just the wind? So one, the clang isn't deafening, it's loud. Two, came to his ears. You mean he heard it? He heard a deafening clang. So I appreciate there often isn't an elegant way to deliver sudden noises. One solution is sentence fragments. A deafening clang. No reader's going to be reading that going, wait, but by what sense receptors does he perceive this deafening clang? But think about the timing of this. We're told the bullet struck the skeleton of a bus in the previous sentence. Then you tell us there's a deafening clang. Incidentally, I'm not sure a shot bus clangs exactly, but I digress. Surely the clang is what tells him that the bus has been hit. So first he hears the noise, then he interprets that as a bullet striking the bus. And here again, a deafening clang came to his ears, but no gunshot. It's a weird order to put this information in. The gunshot would have had to happen before the clang. You could separate this out as a deafening clang, but he'd heard no gunshot. Where were they? Then it's clear that it's a realisation after the fact, but still, this is pretty detailed analysis to be happening in his head in the space between heartbeats. You've stuck was the gun silenced or was it just the wind on the end of this sentence with a comma splice, which won't be obvious in the audio of this. Every time someone uses a comma splice, whatever interventionist deity you happen to believe in straight up murders a red panda cub by dropping it into a vat of caustic soda. Also, why does Will give a shit? Was the gun silenced? Had it been properly maintained by its owner? Was the stock pine or walnut? Someone shooting at him. If it hit a bus 20 yards behind, that gives him a very clear indication of the sniper's location, especially if he knows the bullet just missed his head. The sniper must therefore be at ground level in a straight line drawn back from the bus through him. A gunshot noise would offer no additional information. And wait a minute. Why is Will running over open ground when you've said there's a skeleton of a bus 20 yards behind him? Why isn't he hiding in the substantial cover it would afford? <clears throat> Next sentence. And shortly after the first shot, his guardian angel sixth sense pretty much left him for dead. Fluff, fluff and more fluff. His guardian angel sixth sense pretty much left him for dead. Wow, an entire clause formed purely from cliches. Achievement unlocked. I imagine getting shot is primarily a surprise. Rather spoils it if you spend 17 words setting it up. The second one entered through his right breast, shattered his rib and dug a path through flesh and lung before exiting out the back, white hot, and throwing him to the ground with the force of a sledgehammer. With the force of a sledgehammer is a cliche. Another one. Cut it. So you're here, you're leaving Will's POV to give us this zoomed-in description of the bullet hitting him. So we don't experience it as he experiences it, we get this clinical detachment. Which can be done. You're allowed to do that. Here's a couple O sentences from Tobias Wolff's short story, Bullet in the Brain, where the protagonist, Anders, or Anders, who knows, Anders, 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 has just been shot in the head. The bullet smashed Anders' skull and ploughed through his brain and exited behind his right ear, scattering shards of bone into the cerebral cortex, the corpus callosum, back through the basal ganglia and down into the thalamus. But before all this happened, the first appearance of the bullet in the cerebrum set off a crackling chain of ion transports and neurotransmissions. Because of their peculiar origin, these traced a peculiar pattern, flukishly calling to life for some 
summer afternoon some 40 years past and long since lost to memory. Now, I'm not particularly fond of this technique. I think Wolf's short story achieves the unfortunate feat of being simultaneously glib and mawkish, and it tries to earn its twee sentimental Americana through this literally clinical, hard-boiled atomization of the physical act of a bullet striking someone. And literary readers who think they're too sophisticated for crime fiction experience this little frisson. Ooh, how visceral, yet nuanced. But what I love about your writing, Sam, what comes through strongly is your straightforward passion for giving your readers an exciting time. You want to throw them into the action and give them an experience. That's really cool. And if you can pull it off, it's a real gift you can give to other humans. But at the moment, you're pulling tropes out of movies and TV and transposing them into prose where they work less well. Although they're cliches even on screen. It's not clear whether you want us to be identifying with Will or watching from the outside. You slide between the two. What does it actually feel like getting shot? Have you read any first-person accounts from people who have been shot? Google it. I mean, obviously be careful. They're going to be pretty intense. But find out. Explore. Sometimes the reality is more or less what you expected, admittedly. But you might stumble across some fascinating small detail that makes your account feel real and more powerful. If you're going for an intense personal experience, make sure your narrative keeps pace with the ongoing reality. Engage our five senses, stick to what Will knows, and if he thinks something, have it interrupted by the next event. Make sure his thoughts aren't so glib and jokey that we lose faith in the scene. On the other hand, if you want a detached, choreographed scene, by all means step out into an omniscient narrator. Describe odd details Will would miss. Capture the tableau in all its odd beauty. Give us the calibre of the bullet the radius of the exit wound. Or perhaps you can have both. The important thing is you know what effect you're going for and why. And that's it. If you'd like your first page discussed on the show, please go to timclairpoet.co.uk and I'll pop a link in the show notes to our submission guidelines. We need more pages. When I was doing Death of a Thousand Cuts as a blog, the waiting list was over a year long. I've cleared the spike. The backlog is super low. Now is the time. Strike, strike while the iron is hot. If you want help, if you want warm-hearted and honest feedback on making your work everything it deserves to be, send me what you've got and please tell your friends who write to submit too. Any criticisms, comments, questions, you can send to me via the contact me link on the right of my website. That's timclairpoet.co.uk. Got so many things planned for the podcast. I now have the technology to record two people talking simultaneously. So who knows what the future holds? Two people talking simultaneously, probably. Until next time, remember, with every sentence you write, you get a tiny bit better. But the difference is so small, it's probably not worth it.